Okay, good morning. So my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, and we normally have someone read the scripture to us. Uh, this morning, it'll be me. So uh, if you would follow along, it'll be on the screen behind me uh, or in the insert the, in the worship folder uh, on, on the side that says proclamation of God's word at the top, the outlines on the other side. Uh, we'll get to that momentarily, but let me read portions here, one from Exodus 20, and then from Leviticus 19, and then Matthew 7. And so hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. From Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And then from Matthew 7, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is God's word. So as we are continuing in this series on the Ten Commandments, uh, the playground of God, where we get to have fun, and yet there are walls, or there's barriers, there's a fence around it. Uh, we're last week looking at uh, the first few commands of the ten. Uh, this week looking at kind of the back half. And then just to preview you, next week we're going to talk about authority. So really the honor your father and mother command itself, and then the following week uh, the Sabbath command. And so we're going to we're going to pick out those two that they get their own weeks. So kids, teenagers, parents, uh, next week's all about honoring your father and your mother. Well, even adults. <laughs> I mean, you know, I struggle with that one uh, from time to time, of course. Uh, and then the following week is Sabbath, which is one that uh, we have a lot of questions about. And so uh, that should be a helpful way to end the series. But today we're going to look at 
commands 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 through the lens of loving your neighbor because that's really what it is. And you can't have last week without this week. You can't have love God without love your neighbor. You can't have this week without last week, okay? That is, faith and love always go together. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You can't separate them out. And so it's only as I love God with everything, which is kind of the theme of what Drew was really drawing out uh, last week, it's only as I love God with everything, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, that I can then also love my neighbor. It's out of loving God with everything that I move toward loving my neighbor. And so, uh, if you want to look at the outline there, uh, just on the flip side of the insert, this, the, the last four commands, the last five, show us ways in which we're prone to fail in loving our neighbors. And so that's why we're going to take a look at them, but take a look at them all together. And under these three uh, headings, first, just to start with the golden rule, it's a helpful baseline. You've all heard of it, uh, even if you're new to Christianity or you don't consider yourself a Christian or this is the first time you've ever set foot in a church building in your life, you've probably heard of the golden rule, okay? It's very familiar and it's a helpful baseline. It's a good starting point. But then uh, how do the commandments specifically relate to loving our neighbor? And I wanna use the last one as kind of a framework because if you break the last one, then you've pretty much broken the rest of them anyway right? Coveting leads to all those other things. And then lastly, where does the power to love our neighbor come from? To end with, of all places, uh, Leviticus 19. I'm sure a chapter that uh, you spent a lot of time reading uh, off and on. Uh, incidentally, we're in the book of Leviticus in community Bible reading. If you're following along uh, with us reading through that, and uh, all I would say is just keep slogging away, okay? Wake up every day, open it up, Look at the title, go, I have no idea what this is about to say, but just read through it anyway. It, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be enriched. And eventually, in the next couple of weeks, we'll get to chapter 19, so hopefully this will be a good preview for you. So let me start with a starting point, okay, the golden rule. Look back there at Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus says this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, almost like he's summarizing again, right? And the way the golden rule works is this. What is Jesus asking you to do first? He's asking you to think first, to consider first, right? How would I want my neighbor to love or care for or do to me? Think about that. Consider that. Walk through that in your own mind. And the second thing then would be what? Treat them the same way. However you answer that question, treat them the same way. We looked at a story from the Gospel of Luke last week in Luke chapter 10, and there this lawyer comes up to Jesus and he asks him about eternal life. The lawyer says that loving God with everything and loving your neighbor is the way to life. And Jesus says, do this and you'll, you'll live, you're right. But the neighbor or excuse me, the lawyer wants to know more, and we didn't get to this part last week, and I didn't print it this week, and so if you're taking notes or you're making notes, just write Luke 10 uh, somewhere on here and go back and look at it later, because the back half of this incident or, or uh, encounter with the lawyer is the story of the Good Samaritan. And what prompts Jesus to share the story of the Good Samaritan is the lawyer saying, well, who is my neighbor? And 
Suffice it to say, Jesus summarizes by saying, one's neighbor is anyone in need that one encounters. Anyone in need that one encounters. And love is putting oneself out there to meet those needs. Ask yourself this question. If I was in their shoes, what would I want? Now, that's a, it's, it's kind of a duh question, but it becomes a dangerous question. It's a hard question. If you really are desiring to love them as you would desire to be loved, that's the question. And so in the story, which of the three characters would I want to care for me if I was beat up on the side of the road and left for dead? Those of you familiar with the story, you've got a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan, right? They pass, all, all, uh, the first two pass by. They don't go near the guy. The Samaritan goes over to him picks him up, binds up his wounds, puts him on his donkey, right? Gets dirty, probably bloody, walks out of his way, interrupts his schedule, takes him to an inn, pays the bill, says, take care of whatever you need to get him situated and put it on my tab. That's love. That's, if I was in their shoes, what would I want? And it, of course, it is difficult to do regularly because it's easy to get stuck in the thinking part and not move to the doing part. This, at least, this is where I get caught. So if I'm trying to carry out the golden rule, I'm really good at the whatever you wish that others would do to you. Hmm, yeah, let me think about that. Yeah, that would be, I mean, that'd be great if they would do that. Or, yeah, mm -hmm. but I never get to the doing part because the doing part is the scary part right? Simply because the default mode of my heart is not to consider you. It's to consider me. It's to obsess about me. It's to think about my wants and my needs. And that's why Jesus says what he says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The, the, the motivation, the direction is not simply to stop here in my heart as I wish that you would do to me. It's to do to you, right? So you can see how Love of neighbor gets exposed here. And the commandments, jumping back up into Exodus 20, the commandments this morning expose some very specific areas where loving our, loving our neighbor is very hard. It's places where we get caught on a regular basis. And, you know, if you've ever wondered about the Ten Commandments and why those specific ones, I mean, there's a million sins, right? Why does God choose those specific ones? Uh, well, because they tend to be all-encompassing. You know, God in his uh, infinite wisdom would spell out these 10 and give us really an all-encompassing set. And as you kind of drill down into them, hopefully uh, this makes more sense as we go. So what I want to do is use, as I said earlier, the 10th commandment as kind of a framework so what's the 10th commandment? Look down there at verse 17, right? It's a, long, it's a long one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So it wasn't enough for God to say you shall not covet your neighbor's house. He goes through, he has to list off a few more things. But it's really the key to understanding the previous four. Why? Because, as I said, in a real sense, if you've broken the 10th commandment, you're, you're 
easily set up to break the other ones. Like you're primed and pumped, ready to, ready to go. Disobey away, right, if you covet. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul calls covetousness idolatry. In essence, he says they are the same thing. And, and we, we talked a little bit about this last week, but anything that rivals God in your heart, anything that replaces him in your heart, you are more often than not coveting that thing, which is why it has dethroned God in your heart. So I'd like to think through uh, each of these as an application of coveting. Coveting applied to a specific area of life. And the word really means something like to lust after something. And I know that that's typically thought of in, in a sexual connotation, but in the Bible, to lust after something is simply to want it with an over-desire, with too much desire, which is why the assurance of pardon says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, crucified, put to death, coveting, the source of it. So I'd like to think through this and to think about it in terms of coveting, the word's origin is to delight in something or desire something in the wrong way. Now, when I was a teenager, it was common for us to say, man, I'd kill for a fill-in-the-blank, right? Uh, those of you that are around my age, 41, uh, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, you, you probably said that. I don't know if kids still say that. They say a lot of other stuff, but um, hard for me to keep up these days. But we'd say, I'd kill for a and that's coveting taken to an extreme, right? Man, I'd kill for a, I, in other words, I'd kill that person for their, or if they have a, I'd kill for one of those. And we said it jokingly, but it's behind that statement that's dangerous. In other words, I can't be happy or okay unless I have. So when I'm coveting, what I'm doing is I'm putting my finger on the trigger of my will. I'm already moving toward whatever it is I'm lusting after to put my hooks into it. And so another way to phrase the 10th commandment is keep your heart and hands away from your neighbor's stuff. Notice, not just your hands, but your heart. Okay? And we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, particularly with, with two of these. Each commandment seems to cordon off a sector of life and then pinpoint, pinpoint the moral core of that sector. For example, marriage. The nucleus or the core of marriage is fidelity or faithfulness. But, but each commandment has a God orientation. These, are just, these aren't just good ideas. They are based on God's priorities, and when practiced, life will work best. And so, similar to last week, we can talk... Uh, about what's forbidden, but also what we're being called to. There's a negative feature to these and a positive feature to these. And it's often easy to think about what's forbidden, or maybe it's not anymore. Uh, some of these, it's pretty obvious. Some of them, uh, we can get in the weeds of life and, so, uh, as we say, get in each other's chili a little bit with some of these, um, where we might think we're not disobeying them, but maybe we are. So we want to look at the positive and the negative, right? What does actually loving our neighbor look like if we're carrying these out in addition to what do they forbid us from doing? So first, murder. And as I said, uh, keep your hands and heart off your neighbor's stuff. Your heart. Where does Jesus say murder starts? In the heart. 
You don't just wake up and murder. You think about it. It begins often with anger. And Jesus warns against that in the Sermon on the Mount. He warns against even using terms of abuse or name-calling. And we read it, and it's kind of strange to us, but he says, you've heard it was said, don't murder, but I tell you, if anyone's angry with their brother in their heart, if anyone says, raka, you fool, which was an Aramaic term for you fool, you idiot, he's in danger of the hell of fire, Jesus says. Why is that? Because that's where things can start. Violence inwardly can result in violence outwardly. Now, where's the first instance of murder in the Bible? Page four or five, depending on your, you know, version. And it occurred when Cain became very angry, directed his anger at Abel, his brother, and then killed him. Now, Cain was really angry at God, let's be honest, but he directed it toward his brother, and he struck him and killed him. Murder is forbidden because human beings are sacred. They're made in God's image. The psalmist says, we're crowned with glory and honor. We're made a little lower than the angels. Christians believe that all human beings are immortal, and so to commit murder is to trample on all of that. To covet revenge or the carrying out of a long-held grudge will lead me to murder, either in my heart or with my hands. And incidentally, if you go back and you read all the way through Leviticus 19... And, of course, I wasn't going to print the whole thing for you or read the whole thing for you, but I would commend you to go back and read through. The Ten Commandments are all throughout Leviticus 19 in different forms, some of which we read earlier. But I can covet revenge. I can covet a grudge such that it becomes a part of me. And God says, it will lead me to murder, so be careful. So positively, to love my neighbor means to do all I can to help him or her live. Not just protect my neighbor's life, but to help it toward flourishing. And so think of, the, on the positive side, think of this commandment as I'm called to protect my neighbor, but also promote my neighbor. Secondly, uh, do not commit adultery, he says. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus highlights again, in the Sermon on the Mount, that adultery starts where? In the heart. He says, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, right? But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent or a woman looking at a man with lustful intent has already done it. Adultery prioritizes present need over past commitment. And marriage prioritizes a past covenant and a vow it keeps it right in front of you, or at least it should. And this commandment promotes and encourages marriage by its forbidding adultery. Why is that? Because adultery tears the very fabric of marriage apart. It's why in the book of Hosea, God makes such a big deal about his people committing spiritual adultery, cheating on him with false gods, because he's covenanted with them and they with him. Adultery is forbidden because it destroys covenants. And if human relationships, that is the most important ones, were not based on covenants but transactions, then adultery wouldn't be a big deal. It wouldn't matter. You enter into relationships for what you get out of that relationship and what that person gets from you, and that's it. 
That's the way our culture and the world largely does relationships. But in the Bible, relationships are based on covenants because God bases his relationship with us on covenant. And because God's most significant relationships are based on them, he calls us to fidelity like him. Listen, we didn't read it, but at the beginning of Leviticus 19, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's calling us to holy living because he's calling us to and describing for us how he lives. And he is simply saying, if you're my children, I want you to be like me. Behave like me. Treat one another like me. So to love my neighbor on the positive side is to not covet his wife, which opens me up to the potential for adultery. Loving my neighbor is honoring my covenant and my commitments as well. I mean, I speak to the men in particular because I'm a man. But men, I mean, think about this. Would you want someone looking at your wife with lustful intent? Or your daughter? Or your aunt or your mother or any other female related to you? And yet, when we're looking at another woman that way, that's what we're doing. So back to the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It is a destructive thing. Uh, And it's why... It's why pornography is, is, is so dangerous and so destructive. It all starts and centers right here with this commandment. You shall not commit adultery because relationships in my kingdom are done and honored through their covenantal obligations. Next, you shall not steal. From a commentator uh, on this uh, on this commandment, listen to his words. He says, we know that when a thug snatches a woman's purse, he is stealing. We are not sure whether a creative ad writer that woos money from people by seductive lies is stealing. We know an embezzler is stealing from a bank when he falsifies computer data. We are not sure whether or not a corporation that bribes its customer is. We know that a burglar who takes a poor family's television set is stealing. But we're not always sure whether a company is stealing when it exploits a poor nation's resources. This one, it's kind of fuzzy these days, right? In, in, in the days of Leviticus 19, pretty simple. That cow belongs to your neighbor. If you take it, that's stealing. Well, of course, if I go to Brad's house in the middle of the night and I take his car out of his driveway and take it for myself, I'm stealing. That's something that does not belong to me. But what about sharing your login information for, say, Netflix with, you know, your good friends or your parents or, or your children? Well, maybe not the children. It's kind of sketchy these days. Look at Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. This is a prohibition against stealing stated positively. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What was the reason for that rule? 
because they had poor and refugee people among them all the time, the people of Israel did. God said, you can expect that they're going to be around. And so leave that for them. So my question is, did they just hand them out free food? No. They said, if you want to get some grain or some grapes, you have to come get them, right? So there was still an expectation that they would be doing something. But they didn't, or the implication is, if they did not leave the edges, if they did not leave the fallen grapes, they would, in some sense, be stealing from the poor and the sojourners that were among them. The prohibition against stealing compels us to help those who have nothing to get something. For no person can flourish as an image of God without something to call or to shape or to make his own. And that's why they left the edges. Because they wanted them to be able to get something, to call it their own, to shape it, to make it their own by going and harvesting it. And in an agrarian society where people were very dependent on the harvests and such, you can understand why this is such a big deal. Later in Leviticus 19, it's not printed for you, but God says that the people are to have just weights and measures. And robbing especially the poor by not giving them a just measure or weight of food or offering was condemned by this commandment. And the idea was, uh, and it's weird for us, well, no, it's not. It, it would be like uh, going to the public deli and saying, I would like a half a pound of boar's head honey ham. But Publix has the weight, the, 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 uh, the, the, the scale skewed a little bit. So they actually only give you a third of a pound, but they charge you for half a pound. That's condemned in Leviticus 19 and throughout the Bible. It's part of the reason Jesus was so upset when he went in the temple and cleared the, cleared the uh, tables because the money changers were saying, I'll give you a dove for the offering if you give me five shekels when the weight was off a little bit and really it required 10 shekels. One other application uh, of do not steal, of course, is the prophet Malachi's condemnation of the people of Israel, bringing only a portion of their tithe to the temple. What does Malachi say they're doing there? This is in Malachi uh, chapter 3, I think. I didn't write it down. I apologize. God says they're robbing him. So it's possible to rob even him as you withhold what he has asked you to bring to him. And again, it's a lack of faith. It's not trusting him. It's saying, I got to hoard for myself because I don't trust your generosity to me. The wrong of taking is based on a right of keeping. And so loving my neighbor is honoring what is rightly his. Lastly, lying. Again, commentator on this commandment. I thought this was very helpful, so let me read it to you. Lies diminish everyone we deceive because by lying... We treat persons as if they had no right to share in the mutual trust without which we cannot be human together. Do you hear that? If I can't trust that you're being honest with me when we talk and you can't trust that I'm being honest with you when we talk, I've completely destroyed human community. We've got no hope. In marriage and in commerce, in politics and in law, everywhere people must trust each other. And lying casts doubt on the survival of a humane and civilized society. Communication is central to the human community, and truthfulness 
is therefore this mor- the moral core of this commandment. If there is no trust between us that our communication is, is true, then it erodes our ability to live together. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This has an application in what we read. If you look uh, there at verse uh, 16 in Leviticus 19, uh, on your insert, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Bearing false witness, lying, is making stuff up and using your words in an irresponsible way to slander or to damage, defame. Really, slaughter is the idea behind the word. Your neighbor's name. Communication is central. Our words matter. And so he says, do not bear false witness. Now, to summarize, how's each one of these coveting? How's each one forgetting God, replacing God? What's the idolatry that's involved? And so I'm just going to shoot through them real quick, and I hope this will help to kind of summarize it before we move to the last item there. Anger. Murder. Murder is me replacing my will with God's. Acting like God rather than trusting him to exact justice. It's why the Bible says over and over, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't bear a grudge. Don't hate your brother in your heart. It's all recognizing the fact that that stuff can lead to murder. Adultery. Adultery is me dishonoring past commitments and covenants. It's disregarding the ones that others have made, which is completely unlike God. Thankfully, he honors his covenants and his word, even to his own hurt. Stealing. Stealing is me forgetting that the abundant provision in my life comes from who? The Lord, and only the Lord. Everything I have is is from him. His faithfulness is great, and so why would I need to steal from someone? And lastly, false witness or lying is me hiding or deceiving out of fear when the truth is God speaks truthfully to me because he is truth. That's what happens when you lie, is you're hiding behind, you're afraid. So out of fear, you're hiding behind, you're deceiving. And the reality is, God speaks truth truthfully all the time, sometimes even when it hurts. And so we can trust that if he speaks truthfully to us, we can certainly speak truthfully to each other. Now, where does the power to do all this come from. And you got to go back up to the top, if you're looking at the insert there, you got to go back up to the top of the page to Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord. This is the preface to all ten of the commandments. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Where does the power to love our neighbor come from? Because you've been rescued out of slavery. God prefaces all the commandments with the gospel. He says, I've rescued you. I've redeemed you. I've named you. I will provide for you. I know what's best for you. Trust me. Salvation is my work alone. And so it's knowing that my existence and identity are defined by grace. That is God's gracious rescue of me from my sin by offering Jesus in my place. That becomes the power for loving my neighbor. And don't forget this part. Joyfully obey the commandments. Like, have a smile on my face as I'm not committing adultery, not murdering, not stealing, not bearing false witness, and so forth. Earlier, Brad read the assurance of pardon. It's from Galatians 5, verse 13. If you look back there, 
Paul says this, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are set free. In Jesus, you have been set free. And so the, the, the propensity would be to say, woohoo, I'm free. But Paul says, wait just a second. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. It's almost like he's anticipating what we're going to do. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Oh, be careful. He says, rather than use it as an opportunity to serve the flesh, through love, serve who? One another. And so freedom becomes an opportunity for me. It becomes a power for me to love my neighbor. Notice the refrain at each, or excuse me, at the end of each paragraph. You can't really tell in the way we printed it for you, but if you just go through that reading from Leviticus 19 on your insert, notice how many times this phrase is repeated, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord. Why does he do that? Well, I didn't include the beginning of chapter 19 or, or right up to uh, the, this section. It's from about verse 8 to verse 5, and I'm, I'm sorry for that, but let me summarize because it helps understand why the following verses are so significant. The previous section in Leviticus 19 is all about the peace offering. And to offer the peace offering was simply to claim to have peace with God. As you offered that, you were saying, I'm offering this to you so that I can have peace with you, so that I can approach you, so that I can be with you, God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ when we're justified by faith. But to claim peace with God and then treat your neighbor poorly by stealing or slandering or holding grudges was hypocritical. And the point of the Lord repeating himself after each section is to remind the people of the call to be like him. He says, you shall not do this. I am the Lord. This is how I behave. My children behave like me. He's pointing them away from behaviors that are not like him and toward how he behaves and treats them. And oh my goodness, when you realize in the depths of your soul, that God has treated you not like any of these, but he's been generous to you. His anger, as we've memorized this month, in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but in great compassion I will return to you and seek you and love you. He covenants with us, and we break the covenant all the time, but he never does. He refuses to cheat on us. He doesn't steal from us. His hands are wide open to give to us. And whenever he says something to us, we can trust that it is the truth. All the truth and nothing but the truth. It's a motivation for love. Because love for neighbor shows itself to the world through a holy life like this. But the only path toward this kind of holiness is to look to the Lord himself how he behaves, how he's treated me. As we sang earlier, I'm his child by grace and grace alone. I walk around and breathe by grace and grace alone. I get up in the morning by grace and grace alone. I go to bed at night by grace and grace alone. Everything I do throughout the day, I do by grace and grace alone. And when you get that, when you reflect on that, 
when that becomes the core of your being, it'll make love for neighbors a way of life. So let's pray and ask him to do that among us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reality that uh, all of these things are true of you. And you, in coming and dying for us, in being under the wrath of God for us, now enables us, equips us, it empowers us to be holy as you are holy. So help us to repent. Help us to turn from the ways in which we find ourselves beholden to some of these things, to being weak to loving our neighbor or unable to love our neighbor through a grudge that we might have held or lustful, lustful thoughts or looks or withholding or taking something that belongs to somebody else or not being truthful, all under the banner of wanting to replace our will with yours. Help us repent and turn toward you. And in the turning, make us more like Jesus so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves and you might receive glory and praise as a result. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. That's a great place to end. Uh, you should, I hope, uh, have a great sense of security, peace, uh, joy as you sing the words about that type of love. Uh, not all the wanderings of her heart, that is the church, that is you and I, can make his love from her depart. Great security and comfort in those words. Uh, and they give us the power, and this final word, this benediction over us, gives us the power to go and to do what it is he's calling us to do. That is, love each other through these specific ways, avoiding them, but also positively moving toward each other to keep them. So receive these words, this benediction, as a confirmation of all that we've said, prayed, sung, heard together this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.